Good morning. It is good to be with you today. Um, many may be aware that several of us were kept from being at worship last week, and some are kept from being worship at worship this week uh, due to some COVID-19 exposure. Such is the life and times, right, of 2020. And just a word of encouragement to you, we as a congregation will continue to press through this season. We will continue to trust Christ and love one another. The Lord is utterly faithful in the midst of a pandemic or not. And we as the pastors of CBC are in unanimous and complete agreement that we have no plans to cancel gatherings as we move through the winter. And as we may see COVID numbers on the rise, we're going to aim to be responsible and do things in a way that isn't neglectful. But we will be here on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. The local gathering is not going anywhere. We will gather to receive Christ in the word, in the table, to encourage one another in prayer and in song. It is a sweet thing to be with you today. And what wonderful truths we have heard about, confessed, and sung together this morning. We have more wonderful things to consider from God's word. So let's now go to him in prayer. He is utterly faithful to us to meet us in our need all the time. And he is faithful to meet us as we need him if we're going to understand his word, if we're going to believe his word and rejoice in what's there. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come with complete confidence before you, and that confidence has absolutely nothing to do with us. Our confidence, as we have sung this morning, is completely in your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our surety. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who advocates for us and intercedes for us even now. We come covered in his blood robed with his righteousness. And we ask that you would be with us now as we look to your word. We pray for your spirit to be poured out amongst us that we might see your word for what it is, that we might believe what is in it and might rejoice over what you have revealed to us. We pray that we would be stirred up in our hearts and minds, that we would be filled with love and gratitude to you and that we might be spurred and stirred up to love and good works toward one another. So we pray for this to happen, and we pray for you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've sung a number of great songs today. One very well-known song, beloved by many, that we have not sung this morning is the song Amazing Grace. It is loved by many for good reason. In that song, we sing that I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That is the testimony of every single child of God. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. I once was far off, but now in Christ have been brought near. I've been saved from wrath, and I've been saved to God's people. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. We are continuing to make our way through this wonderful letter of the Apostle Paul. Specifically this morning, we will be considering verses 19 to 22 of the second chapter of Ephesians. But as you've now had some time to turn, also if you don't have a Bible with you, please don't worry about that at all. The words to the sermon text will be on the screen behind me. 
I'm going to read for our benefit and for some context, beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians 2, and we will read through the end of the chapter. Listen now to God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. I realize we're having a little bit of technical issue. If this gets worse, we'll make an adjustment, I would assume. Great. So we're going to keep tracking. You keep tracking with me. We thank God for his word. I have three points for us this morning to consider from Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Every now and then I come up with a three-point outline like any good Baptist preacher should. Amen, somebody, right? Point number one, we are in, in Christ, excuse me, point one, in Christ, we are God's people. In Christ, we are God's people. Let's look together at verse 19. The Ephesian Christians, you can see it right there on the page, according to the Apostle Paul, are no longer strangers and aliens, that is, foreigners, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul is continuing a thought that he began in verse 11. And in one sense, we could observe that verses 11 to 22 are very parallel to what's contained in verses 1 to 10. In verses 1 to 10, it's a very um, individual kind of consideration, what is true of every individual, what we were apart from God's grace, what God and His grace has done, and how we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then beginning in verse 11 through 22, we see a very corporate kind of feel to that same truth. Here is what you once were. Now in Christ you have been brought near, you have peace with God and with one another, and you are being built now into the very dwelling place of God, into a holy temple where the Lord lives. So Paul is continuing this thought that he's begun in verse 11. We can track with his flow of thought. He says that the Ephesians were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. They were without hope. They were without God in the world. They were once far off, but now in Christ Jesus have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the work of Jesus, they have been brought near to God. Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between Gentiles, that would be the Ephesians, and Jews. Jesus has done this by fulfilling and abolishing the ceremonial law that played a part in separating Israel from the nations. 
And Jesus has reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God through the cross. Jesus came to preach peace to Gentiles who were far off. He came to preach peace to Jews who were near. And through Jesus, all the saints, both Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. That's Paul's flow of thought that brings him to this. The alienation of the Ephesian Christians, the fact that they were strangers, they were foreigners, they were far off, that has all been completely reversed in Christ Jesus. Because of Christ and only because of Him, they have been brought near and made members of the household of God. So too with you. So too with me. Jesus has made us the people of God. In doing so, He has done for us what the angel of the Lord did for the high priest named Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3. Some of you may be familiar with this account. It is a wonderful picture of the work of Christ on behalf of the saints. Turn there if you have your Bibles with you. I think Ryan's going to try to get the verses on the screen. Let's look together and rejoice over these first few verses of Zechariah 3 and thinking about how Jesus, through what he has done, has made us who were once filthy and far off. He has made us now citizens and members of the household of God. In Zechariah, the prophet writes, Then he, God, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. How we, in our own merit, in our own filth, stand before God. Satan, the great accuser of the brethren, stands to condemn us. We know that we are unclean, that we are guilty, that we are not worthy of God. And the angel of the Lord, the Lord Christ, looks to us and says, fear not. You're no longer guilty. I will take those dirty clothes from you. And I will give you pure vestments to wear. I will give you robes of righteousness to wear. Christ, brothers and sisters, has made us the people of God. How? He has done so by taking our iniquity away from us and taking up on Himself. And then He gives us the pure vestments of His own righteousness to wear that we might stand faultless before the throne of God, not condemned, but righteous. Dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Continuing to reflect together on the wonder of this gospel, the fact that we who were strangers and aliens and wretched and condemned have now been brought near, have now been made members and citizens of God's household. Think of what we were. Not only like Joshua wearing filthy clothes, not only like Joshua in Zechariah's vision, we were unacceptable. We were like the Ephesian Christian strangers and outsiders. We were orphans, fatherless. 
We were lost, blind, dead, enslaved, hopeless, and desperate. Yet in Christ, God has made us his. Praise be to his name. God, as Paul says in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, is rich in mercy. Mercy is who God is. It's what He is. It is an essential attribute of His nature. God does not have to learn mercy. He is a fount of mercy and it flows out of Him. Because also of the great love with which God loved us. As our brother prayed so beautifully this morning, God Himself is love. God loves with a perfect love. And God has set His unrelenting covenant love on His people from before the world was made. Because of God's extravagant grace, we have been made a part of His household. We could never earn this. Salvation from beginning to end, as we thought about a few weeks ago, is a gift from God. God also, in making us a part of His household, has demonstrated His kindness to us. God also is benevolent. He, again, doesn't have to learn how to be good to His children. Tommy, I'm just going to go with this pulpit microphone, I think. Sorry about this, guys. Help me out, brother. All right. Beautiful. I'm going to project. This is not a large room. We're going to be fine. So just like God does not have to be taught how to be merciful, he doesn't have to be taught how to love. He does not have to be taught how to show grace to sinners. He does not have to be taught to be benevolent, to be good, to be kind to his own. God desires in his heart to do good to his children. I think a lot of times we impugn God's character, not meaning to do it. But we often think that he is quite reluctant to love us because we know ourselves to be unworthy. That's not who our God is. God is eager to not only love, but to bless. God is eager to love and to do good to his children. Here's an awesome thought. We, in being saved and ransomed by the Lord Jesus Christ and being given those pure vestments of righteousness to wear, in being given the gift of salvation, we have received something that is of infinite value. We will bask in the love of God the Father forever. We will be thrilled by the love and the fellowship of Jesus Christ forever. And we are totally unworthy of all of that. But it is not as though God will hold our unworthiness over our heads for all of eternity. Far from it. He is not like us. He delights to save his people. He will not remind us of our unworthiness, 
forever, far from it. This is part of the wonder of the gospel and what makes God so great. Ephesians 2, 7, he will delight in showing the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It will be his joy forever. There's no leveraging when it comes to God. God doesn't have an angle that he's trying to work. There's no bait and switch. Our song, rightly, will forever be, Jesus died my soul to save. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And God's word to us will be, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy forever. What a God. What a gospel. The ungodly have been counted righteous. And one day will be presented pure and blameless. The wretched have been ransomed. And one day will be presented without blemish alongside their Savior King. The unworthy have been loved and one day will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their heavenly Father. The outcasts have been brought in. The orphans have been adopted. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Those are marvelous words. Which brings us to our second point for consideration. Point one, in Christ we are God's people. Point number two, in Christ we are God's building. In Christ we are God's building. Let's look our, and now put our eyes, excuse me, on verse 20. Verse 20. Paul's told us in verse 19 that we're no longer strangers and aliens. We're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And now with respect to the household of God, it is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The household of God is the church, and God is the one who is building it. We are God's building in Christ Jesus. The church you see there in the text is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Just Something to observe, this foundation has been laid. It need not be laid again. Moving on from that observation, though, let's consider the prophets and the apostles. Who are the prophets? They are those who were declared to be so by God and whose words were recorded for us in Scripture. They are prophets as in the second piece of the law and the prophets. The apostles were those who saw the risen Christ and who were entrusted with his teaching in order that the church might be established. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now by that, Paul does not mean that the church is built on particular people. There is no mention of something like a patriarchy or a monarchy with respect to the church. What Paul means, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and this is going to become increasingly clear as we make our way through the rest of this letter, let alone as we look at the whole of biblical revelation. What Paul means 
is that the church is built on their word, on their testimony, on their teaching. The foundation, brothers and sisters, of the church is doctrine. The doctrine in particular of the apostles and prophets, what they taught, what they said. As John Calvin notes, quote, nothing else was ever intended by the prophets and apostles than to found a church on Christ, close quote. So not only is this household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and their testimony, their doctrine, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone of this building. A cornerstone is the first stone that is set in the construction of a masonry foundation. Not only does it bear a lot of weight with respect to a building structure, all of the other stones are set in reference to the cornerstone. And so the cornerstone determines the position of the entire structure. The cornerstone is the principal support and tie of the whole building. This is a rich image that Paul uses. We'll reflect on it more in just a moment. But even the language itself of Jesus Christ being the cornerstone of the household of God should be no surprise to us. The household of God is built, as we've already considered, on the doctrine of the apostles and prophets. Well, who did the apostles bear witness to? Jesus. Who did the prophets write about? Well, according to Christ, they wrote about him. And biblically, this cornerstone language is not new. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23 read this way. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Those words written very clearly about the Messiah, the Christ who was to come. As the prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 28 and verse 16, Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, God's holy city. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This image of God building a structure that is his people is not a new image. The idea, the teaching that there would come one, the Christ, who would be the cornerstone of this structure is not new teaching. The apostles are just continuing to bear witness to what the prophets bore witness to. Let's reflect, though, for just a few moments on Christ as the cornerstone of the church. We'll consider first Christ as the cornerstone of the church in that he is the weight bearer of the church. And then secondly, that he is the stone on which everything else is oriented in the church. So this is all under point two. We're going to reflect together on Christ as the cornerstone. First, as the weight bearer for this building of the household of God. First of all, Jesus bore the weight of our sin. It's a significant weight. He took our sin and corruption upon himself, just like that image with Joshua in his filthy clothes. In taking that upon himself, he made perfect, full, and complete atonement. 
for our sin. He satisfied the wrath of God completely for our sin and our corruption. All of our striving could never wash it away. The guilt that we bear, the wrong that we have done, the permanent stain that is upon us. But God, being rich in mercy, triumphed over our sin through his son and what he accomplished in our place. In Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, we are absolved of all guilt. It's a shocking word to sinners who need forgiveness and to sinners who are really guilty, forgiven. It's a scandalous message. So whatever you end up doing this afternoon when you leave here, leave here knowing that you have forgiven and that you are absolved. Enjoy your loved ones. Enjoy the good things that God has given you, knowing that because of God's grace and mercy to you in Christ, you are forgiven and you are free. Jesus, though, is the one who has borne the weight of sin. Jesus also has borne the weight of righteousness. He alone is the one who came to fulfill God's law. He's the only human being ever who has lived a life of perfect obedience to every word that his father has revealed. Like we sang earlier, he kept his father's every word. The law he followed perfectly. So all God's pleasure he secured. All this and more he earned for me. Jesus at the right time was born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. That's you and that's me. He accomplished perfect obedience, which is credited to us, just like the pure vestments that Joshua, the high priest, was given to wear. Not only has Christ alone borne the weight of sin, not only has Christ alone borne the weight of righteousness for the church, Christ alone has carried the weight of victory. Victory over Satan. Jesus has crushed his head. I don't know about you, but that's wonderful news because everything that we read of our enemy in the scripture is a terrifying and harrowing reality. He is a liar. He is an accuser. Outside of Christ, he tells people, you don't need mercy, you're fine. Once in Christ, he tells you, you're not good enough. You're not forgiven. Thank God that Jesus has crushed his head. The great enemy of the brethren is as good as dead already and will one day be vanquished forever. Christ alone has done that. Christ alone has won the victory over hell. He endured it for us. He was forsaken so that we never would be. Christ alone has won the victory over death. He conquered it and has removed its victory. He has taken away its sting. He alone has won the victory because he alone could. 
as we often sing, sometimes sing in the wonderful hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Victory over Satan. Victory over hell. Victory over the grave. Christ alone has won it. In his perfect life, as well as in his suffering, only Jesus Christ has held the weight of true and full obedience. You ever thought about that? In his perfect life, as well as in his suffering, he is the only person to have ever held the weight of true and full obedience to God. He did everything that he had agreed he would do in order to save his people. That great covenant that he and his father had made before the world began to save us, he did everything that he had committed to do so that we might be saved in righteousness to live with God forever. Jesus, according to the writer of the Hebrews, is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the founder of our salvation. He will, Matthew tells us, build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As the cornerstone of the church, Jesus alone does all of that and bears all of that weight. But secondly, Jesus, as the cornerstone, is the stone on which every other stone is oriented. So this entire building of the household of God, it is all oriented on Christ. In the church, pick your phrase, however you like to describe it. In the church, Jesus is the true north. He is the guiding star. He is the plumb line. Jesus, his person and what he did, orient and drive everything in the life of God's people. He is the focus of everything we do. He is the emphasis of everything we do. He is who and what we rally around. There are all kinds of things that you can get people geeked up over. There are all kinds of things, even in the church, that you can rally people around that might be good. But there is only one person who is great and ultimate. His name is Christ, and he is why we're here. Again, I reference John Calvin. He says, quote, If we wish to make sure progress in the knowledge of the Scriptures, we want to make that progress, don't we? We want to progress in our knowledge and our understanding of the Scriptures. But what did this one man, this one theologian say about that? If we wish to make sure progress in the knowledge of the Scriptures to Christ, our whole attention must be directed, close quote. I reference other people sometimes because we're all ultimately looking to God's word. We are aiming to be good Bereans here in this church, right? Where we look to the word and we want to see this in the word. But it's also good to understand that we and our pastors here at CBC are saying nothing new. We're only saying things that are actually quite old. It is right and it is biblical that everything in the church is oriented around the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how it should be. As believers, we are those who place our reliance on no one or nothing other than Christ. 
For as Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, Philippians 3.3. We trust in Jesus and nothing else. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, as the hymn goes. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, 11. A good question to ask as well as we consider these things. What is Jesus Christ for us? What is Jesus Christ for us? According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, he is wisdom from God. He is righteousness. He is sanctification. He is redemption. For us, consider the scope of those words. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. That scope is massive. What is it that we could ever need that Christ has not provided? Why would we ever look to anyone else? Christ is totally and completely sufficient. He is mighty and able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him. As we like to say around here, not to be catchy and cute, but Jesus is enough. And what we mean is not that Jesus is enough to make you feel better. Not that Jesus is enough so you're always going to feel content. I No confidence that you're always going to feel content any more than I will. But we mean that Christ is enough in that he has saved us. He has handled our sin. He has provided us with righteousness. He has secured our resurrection. He has made it certain that we will be with God forever. And he has told us he'll never leave us or forsake us. So we are ultimately safe. He's enough. Nothing else is required. Nothing else is required of you. This is where it starts to sound really scandalous, and this has always been the objection to the gospel. Bro, you can't talk like that. can't tell people that there's nothing left for them to do that Christ has done it all. To which we say, oh, but if you have seen Christ... Oh, if you understood the gospel, you would be filled with love and gratitude and praise to your God. You would be filled with peace and comfort, security and joy to pursue obedience and good works for Christ's sake. That's how the Lord works. Christ is enough. Consider this kind of reining us back in here and thinking about how everything in the life of the church is about Christ. Is that appropriate? Are we being reductionistic? My my answer is no, we're not. The Gospels are replete with words of God the Father's pleasure in his Son. They are full of passages where Jesus is very clear that the Father is the one who glorifies Him. That the Father is the one who seeks the Son's glory. And the epistles are full of language of God being glorified 
through Jesus and what he has done. So, if we want to glorify and honor God, which we do, amen? We want to glorify and honor God. How would we best do that? It would be by making much of his son and by trusting him completely. God is glorified as we exalt Christ and as we cast ourselves completely upon him. Because how is the Father glorified when we make much of Christ? He's glorified because that's what he does. If we want to be a church after God's own heart, let's glorify and exalt the Son. And so, what does this mean for us? It means that we make it our aim here, the pastors and the saints, the congregation of Covenant Baptist Church, we make it our aim as the saints always have, to extol as much as possible the grace, mercy, love, power, and sufficiency of Jesus Christ so that we might look to Him and we might never look to anything else. Everything else that we do in the church flows out of that. Everything else that we do in the church is oriented off of that. And everything else that we do in the church is subservient to that. Jesus is the definite article, cornerstone of the church. Point three. So remember point one, in Christ we are God's people. Point two, in Christ we are God's building. Point three, in Christ we are God's dwelling place. Point three, in Christ we are God's dwelling place. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. So this household of God that we are now a part of has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we, the saints, the church, are being fashioned into the dwelling place of God. Sit there for a moment. Just think about that reality. Now, only in Christ is this happening. You see that in verse 21. In whom? That's about Jesus. Beginning of verse 22. In him. So it's in and through Christ. Only by the work of the Spirit. You see that at the end of verse 22. By the Spirit. So this is God's doing. It's not our doing. It's not because we're swell. It's because God is merciful and gracious and pretty awesome. He is building us into his own dwelling place. Thinking just very briefly, I'm just super fast. The dwelling place of God, like where God's presence uniquely dwells on earth is a big theme in the Bible. Fair to say. As we begin the story, God dwells uniquely in a garden called Eden where Adam and Eve were. We know that that was blown up by sin. God adopted for himself, chose for himself the people of Israel. He had them build a tabernacle where his presence would uniquely dwell as they were a migrating people. It's like a big tent where he would dwell, his presence. We know eventually, beginning with Solomon and thereafter, a temple was built where God's presence uniquely would dwell on earth. But then with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in John chapter 1, 
the word, the divine word of God took on flesh and literally tabernacled, dwelt among us. So as Christ was here, Emmanuel, God with us, God uniquely dwelled on earth in Christ. And then the Lord Jesus ascended. The Holy Spirit came. And now God by his spirit dwells where? In the church. And one day, the fulfillment of all of this will be the new heavens and the new earth where heaven will quite literally come down and we will be with God and him with us. So this presence of God thing, this dwelling place of God is a big deal. Let's continue thinking about this. A massively significant thought that is antithetical to a lot of the ways that we as modern American Christians tend to think. Right now, in this era of redemptive history, the church is where God dwells. Let me put it to you this way. If we want to know Christ tangibly in this world, we will know him through his bride, or we will not know him. Now, this is not Roman Catholicism, like the church saves people. It's not what I'm saying. This would be very clear. But if we want to know Christ tangibly in this world, we will know him through his bride, where his word is preached, where his sacraments are administered, where his praises are sung, where prayers are prayed in his name to the Father, and where we build one another up unto maturity in Christ-likeness. That is where, this is where we will tangibly know the Lord Jesus. So I realize in saying this, I'm very well aware that there are a lot of really bad churches. There are a lot of churches where there's no Christ, there's no gospel, the word of God is disregarded, the sacraments are abused, and love is just nowhere to be found. But when we talk about an imperfect but true church, an imperfect but true church where the word is preached, sacraments are administered, and all those things that I just described, we can say with Scripture, God dwells here. Not in this building, in this people. And that's not mysticism, brothers and sisters. That's Bible. Why do we need the church? There are a whole host of reasons. One of the reasons we need the church is because God dwells with his people, in his people, and he ministers uniquely in their midst. God's presence, his grace, his power, his mercy, his love, these things most pointedly manifest themselves in and through the church. And this is God's design. You know, sometimes when you're a pastor and you're in the pay of the church, it sounds very self-serving to get up here and say things like this. But this is not my idea. This is not the idea of our pastors. This is not the idea of pastors through the centuries. This is God's plan. We're going to look at verse 10 of chapter 3 in a few weeks' time, and we're going to see that God could have glorified himself in any number of ways, and he chose to do it through the church. Whoa. But continuing to track with the theme and the feel of these verses that the Apostle Paul has penned, here's a wonderful thought. How incredible is it 
that we who were once far off and alienated from God are now the place where he dwells. It's astonishing. In our text, I want to draw some attention to the work of the Holy Spirit in building the church. Paul is very clear that this work of God's dwelling place being built is done by the Holy Spirit. So while we're here, just kind of a brief aside, if somebody were to ever ask you about CBC and you say, hey, what do you guys believe the Holy Spirit does? There are a number of things we could say. We believe that he inspired men to write scripture. We believe that he brings about regeneration, the new birth. We believe that he baptizes and seals us into Christ. We believe that he empowers worship and makes it possible in the first place. We believe that he exalts Christ always. We believe that he gives gifts to the saints to be used in the church. We believe that he convicts of sin and drives us to Jesus. We believe that he prompts us to pray. We believe that he does the work of sanctification. We believe that he will see to it that we are conformed ultimately into the image of Christ. We believe that he is the guarantee of our final salvation, and we believe that he builds the church. It's quite a bit that the Holy Spirit does. As we are moving towards an ending, this is the danger, right, when I'm out of the pulpit, when I come back, you're like, man, I'm just going to preach a long sermon. I'm going to try to bring us to a close here. Regarding the building up of the church, what else can we say about it? I don't want to steal sort of Paul's thunder or my own from a few weeks' time, but Ephesians chapter 4 is very significant in thinking about the building up of the body of Christ. Just very briefly, in looking at a few of those verses, in particular verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom, or excuse me, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What else can we say about the building of this dwelling place for God, this building of the church? Not only that it is only in Christ, not only that it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit, but that we are all involved in this. Every part of the body is involved in this. As we're going to see in Ephesians 4, we are all given gifts according to Christ's grace to us. The building and the growth of the church occurs as the whole body builds itself up in love. Now, that has all kinds of implications for our lives. If it takes all of us, if we are all involved in being built up in love unto maturity, if God uniquely dwells in his people, that means a bunch of things for us. One, it means that we should orient our lives around a local church that preaches Christ. For many of us in this room, that means CBC. We should be present as much as is possible. And I realize that we are in the midst of a pandemic. I'm not asking people, the elders are not asking people to be unreasonable, but be present as much as is possible. We will continue to 
just think unashamedly about these things, the fact that we are all a part of ministry and we are all a part of the upbuilding of the church. We are all a part of our growth in the faith. This will happen together or not at all. Sanctification is a community project. Assurance of salvation is a community project. We need each other. And so our primary ministry in this church for every single one of us is to show up, is to be here. And what's cool is when you come and you just show up, a lot of other ministry flows out of that. In the Christian life, we, we like to talk in our current context about disciplines and things that we can be doing that would be good for our lives. I will offer this and stand by it. In the Christian life, if we are going to discipline ourselves for anything, we should train ourselves to be present for the corporate gathering on Sunday. If we're going to discipline ourselves for anything, let's orient our lives, let's plan our lives, let's train ourselves to be here on Sunday at 10 a.m. to worship together because we need each other. We should pursue unity and peace with one another in the spirit around Christ. We should, in light of all these wonderful truths, walk humbly with one another. We should speak the truth in love to one another. We should encourage one another to fight against sin and to pursue good works. All so that we, the church, will be built up in love unto maturity. And the good news, friends, in all of this is that as we strive after these things, we can take heart that we, together as the church, will be presented pure and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because God has promised that and Christ has seen to it. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, Ephesians 5. In Christ, we've been adopted by God and reconciled to him, and now his spirit dwells in us, and one day God will dwell with us and we with him. We will see Christ as he is, and we will be like him. It is our certain hope. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to call you that. We thank you for what you have done for us. We've praised you today for who you are, and we thank you now for what you've done in bringing us who were far off near, in making those of us who were filthy clean, in making those of us who were corrupt righteous. We pray that you would continue by your spirit to minister to us as we come to your table. As we have received your son and beheld him in the word, we pray that we now by faith would receive him in the bread and in the cup. Sustain and confirm and strengthen our faith 
Grow us in love and every good grace, we pray. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.